please uh, open your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews. And chapter 9. Hebrews 9, this morning we're going to be verses uh, 15 to 22. Beginning in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning for his people, for our believing. There may be no more random event of the enactment of a will than what a man named Carlos Cabral de Camara has done many years ago. This Portuguese aristocrat who had no children of his own to leave his vast wealth to and did not want the government to take it, selected at random out of the Lisbon telephone book 70 people to be heirs of his inheritance. Those who were helping him with his will certainly asked some questions, are you sure? But Carlos said, no, I am sure this is what I want to do. And so he picked people at random out of the phone book 13 years prior to his death. To the surprise of those who were chosen, upon being informed that they were now heirs of an inheritance of someone that they have never heard of before, most of them thought it was a scam. Check fraud. (laughs) Yes. They were surprised to find out this, and they, upon receiving this news, would think, oh, well, he chose 70, so it couldn't be that much. They didn't know that this man was very wealthy, and each of them received several thousands of dollars as an inheritance. We have all had a daydream like this at one time or another. (laughs) We've all thought, wouldn't it be nice to receive some unexpected inheritance? Wouldn't it be great to just get a phone call or a letter one day from some long-lost relative that we've never known and to our surprise, receive a great wealth and a fortune. The author of our letter, the letter to the Hebrews, he is eager 
to inform his listeners not of an unexpected inheritance and not of some whimsical daydream. He's eager to convince them of a secured inheritance that is theirs. Not some daydream idea, but a established reality that has come in this new covenant to what our text is arguing about. And for us this morning, we are, by God's grace, given this word through the preservation and work of the Holy Spirit to be convinced ourselves of a secured inheritance in this new covenant that is meant to change our today. This text is meant to give us this great hope of this inheritance. The author of this letter has been arguing for several chapters now and has been building the case for an exalted hope. Again and again, he has been arguing that the believer in Jesus has a new and better hope, a new and better reality. This great and promised inheritance that is theirs is coming because of what Jesus has done. There is this anticipation of the Old Testament that keeps looking forward, and our author is arguing to the original audience, and therefore the Lord for us this morning wants us to know that Jesus has been the fulfillment of all that has been anticipated. That Jesus has accomplished all that was waiting to be accomplished in the old covenant, in its sacrificial system, in its rituals. All those things were seeking to demonstrate what was necessary to secure this eternal inheritance. All those demonstrations pointing forward to what was desired of God and Jesus comes as the fulfillment of it all. This inheritance, this everlasting relationship with the God who has made us. And so, again and again, the author of this letter points to Jesus as the fulfillment of these things. And in our text this morning, he is in the middle of this argument. And for us as Americans in the age of social media, we have no problem jumping into the middle of an argument. So that's our task this morning. What is the argument that he is making that would, that would give a response to these original readers that they would not just have daydream ideas about an inheritance, but a secure reality of it that would produce in them the appropriate response? the appropriate response to this, this new covenant that comes by the person and work of Jesus. And so this, this is our main point. This is the main point for the original readers. It is the main point for us this morning that there is only one appropriate response to the reality of this establishment of this new covenant. Seeing this clearly, the only appropriate response is wonder and worship. That is what we were made for. And to see this be established by the person and work of Jesus Christ, the only appropriate response, if we see it clearly, is to wonder at it and respond in worship to the Lord. So, verse 15. He begins, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And we must start with one of my favorite Bible study questions. Whenever we see a therefore in the Bible, we should ask, what is the therefore, therefore? There's a reason for placing this word in the middle of this argument because he wants to connect what has previously been argued with what he see, is about to say. Jesus is this mediator of a new covenant. How did that happen? It happened, look back up 
in the verses just before it, the end of verse 13, that there was sanctification for the purification of the flesh. And he says, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Jesus offering himself as the sacrifice has become the mediator of a new covenant. What does this covenant bring? Second half of verse 15. It brings the promised eternal inheritance to those who were called. It is established through this work of Jesus. Now, in studying this text, there were many questions that come to mind, but I want to go through three questions that I believe are raised in this text and that I am hoping through looking at God's word and with the help of the Spirit, we will get answers. So our, our Bible Q&A for this morning, three questions. First question, was the death of Jesus really necessary? Why did Jesus have to die? in order to bring this eternal inheritance. Couldn't there be another way? Couldn't God have designed a different way for Jesus to bring this inheritance, to give this relationship with God for all eternity in a different way? Why must there be death? As our author is seeking to convince us that the new covenant in secures for us this promised inheritance and this great blessing. He wants us to know that it can only come by the death of the one who has made it. He argues in verse 16, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. There has been a will that God himself has put forth for the people whom he has called. This will that they would receive the inheritance of fellowship with him forever. And that will can only be established by death. A person who makes a will the testator, writes what they want to have happened upon their death, but none of those things can take an effect for the inheritor until that death has occurred. And so in order for God's people to receive the will of his promised eternal inheritance, the death of Jesus must be established. Death was necessary for the will to take effect. And not only was death necessary because of the nature of how an inheritance works, but unlike earthly inheritances, those they can have at times gifts given without. Those who hold the inheritance, if they choose, they can give out gifts before their death. It's my hope to inherit all the tools of my father upon his death when that day comes. But if he so chooses, he could now give me some of those tools before that day. For his happiness in seeing the joy of his son And like that has not been written down, but there has been that, that borrowing, I will return. Some of that is taking place already. But unlike that option, God doesn't have that option. The death is necessary not only to establish the will, but the death is necessary because the inheritance is unhindered relationship with the holy God. That's the inheritance of the sinner. And that unhindered relationship with the holy God cannot happen 
because of the obstacle of sin. God, in his perfect holiness, cannot be in the presence of sin, of rebellion. This obstacle must be removed. Man, man was made for God, for God's glory, and for man's joy, to have an intimate relationship with the one who has made us every day and for all eternity. This intimate relationship with God that would be enjoyed, where we would point to his goodness and his love and his glory, and we would receive the joy of knowing him and being a part of his fellowship. But that has an obstacle to it. Sin has gotten in the way of this relationship. Sin has broken this fellowship. Ever since the first sin in the garden, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good command for them, relationship with God who has made them for him has been broken. Why does this happen? Why does sin break relationship with God? Sin, sin is by its nature rebellion against God. God who is perfect in all of his holiness, in his righteousness, in his justice, in his love. It is completely out of his nature that God would be amongst rebellion and sin. And God commanded that man would live in fellowship with that perfection of his nature. But because of the rebellion of our first parents, rebellion has been embedded in the heart of every person. Every one of us has this rebellion embedded in our hearts. Every one of us, because of this rebellion in our hearts, is, is at, the Bible says, enmity with God. We are enemies before a holy God because all of us in our hearts are stained with this rebellion of sin and God cannot allow sin to be in his presence and God cannot allow that rebellion to go unpunished. God, perfect in his holiness, is perfect in his justice. And so out of his nature, God has a wrath stored up against sin, against rebellion. There is a, a holy wrath for sin. Now we might be tempted to pose an objection at this point. We might say, how can you talk about a God who is complete in his goodness and love, extending that to all that he has created, simultaneously be a God of wrath and punishment. How can those two things come together? Aren't they at odds? How is it loving that the God who made us would be a God who is set to bring judgment upon us and wrath on us? And the answer is because of his perfect justice. And, and we know this too. We all, have, we all have this sense of justice built inside of us. The sense of justice is, is wired into our very being. It's, it's how we're made because we're all made in God's image, so says his word. We all have, have this reaction whenever we we witness injustice in our world where we see people fall to the victim of people treating them unfairly and unkindly and there wells up in us this sense of that's not fair. There must be some sort of just reaction to that injustice. Yet, 
even with that sense of justice built in us, we fail to see, we often fail to see the injustice of our own sin. Of our own sin against a God who is perfect in his righteousness. We fail to see the, the weight and reality of our own sin because we want to excuse it away as something minor. And we do that because we fail to see how wonderfully righteous and holy God is. Our, our own sin, is, it's easy to, to let it pale in comparison to the sins of others. But there is no paling of our sin set before the complete and perfect holy God. It sticks out in its horrendous injustice. So our objection to God reacting with holy wrath, that only comes when we fail to see how heinous our own sin is. This wrath of God, it is just and it is right and it has a requirement to be satisfied. The rebellion that sin has brought, this wrath upon sinners, the penalty for sin, the Bible says, is death. Death. Separation from God forever. Death is separation, cast out, just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, sent away from God's presence. And God said, you will surely die. Separated from God in all of his goodness, in all of his kindness, in all of his love, sin brings separation. Sin brings death. This is the cosmic problem for every person. This is the predicament that every individual finds themselves in. We have all fallen in our sin. We have all rebelled against a holy God. Therefore, we are all set to die and be separated from God forever because that is the just reaction of holy wrath. Every one of us is put in this place. This is the reality at the center of the universe that sinners are condemned by death to be separated from God forever. And every one of us born into this world, into this life of rebellion, stands guilty and condemned before God. This is why this text is not just news, but this text is needed news. Because in this passage of God's holy word, we are presented with the solution to the cosmic problem. Not at a level that is far away, but at a level that meets every individual sinner right where you need it. Because God, even in his holy, just wrath, overflows with love and mercy and has provided for the sinner a substitute in that death. God has given to every sinner, another to take their place in what they are deserving of, in the death of themselves and separation from God, he has put forth his son to be, to be the propitiation in his blood. And you said the what? The propitiation in his blood. Jesus, if you flip back to Hebrews 2, just a few pages. 
Hebrews 2, verse 17. In this passage, our author is arguing that Jesus became a man and took on flesh. And he did that for this reason. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now we got to know, what does that word mean? If Jesus takes on flesh, becomes a man in order to, to make propitiation by his blood, that sounds really important. The propitiating work of Jesus means that he, he satisfies the wrath of God. That, that pent up penalty that all sin deserves because of its rebellion against the holy God that must be poured out because God is perfect in justice. Jesus, as a substitute for sinners, receives the wrath of God and satisfies it completely. How does he do this? He takes on flesh, becomes like us, becomes a man completely and fully, and lives a life of perfect obedience that none of us ever have or could do. And therefore, not only is he a man, a suitable substitute, but he is the perfect man, an acceptable sacrifice. And then he is the substitute for sinners dying on the cross in the place of all of those who would repent and trust and believe on him. He receives the full wrath of the justice of the holy God and removes that penalty for the sinner. And what does that do? It takes away the separation from God. It removes the wrath. It removes not only the wrath, but as the sin-bearing substitute, it removes the obstacle of sin so that there is no longer for the Christian, the believer in Jesus Christ, an obstacle to relationship with God. Jesus Christ the sin-bearing, wrath-receiving substitute has propitiated the wrath of God for sinners. Jesus is this mediator of a new covenant. Jesus has done what was necessary. Jesus has died. There is no other way. Death was required to establish this eternal inheritance, this fellowship with God. Verse 16, for where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive, which brings us to question number two. If this will only takes effect upon death, what about all those Old Testament saints that died before the death of Jesus? How were they saved? How were they rescued from their rebellion and sin? How was the obstacle of their sin removed so that they could have fellowship with God? What about Sarah and Abraham? Joseph and Moses. What about David? The problem under the old covenant was that the people were required to be obedient to the laws that God had given them. They were required to obey all that God put before them. There is a refrain in Exodus 24. Once the law was presented to the people by Moses, this is what the people said. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. You only have to read a little bit 
No, you won't. No, you didn't. They failed to fulfill the requirement under that covenant. They failed to fulfill what the promise required. And so there was condemnation from the Lord for their sin. God gave them the sacrifices of the old covenant. The sacrifices of goats and lambs and bulls and calves. All these symbols of death. All of them to demonstrate what was necessary. To demonstrate that death was required to restore fellowship with God. Let's do a case study. Think of King David. If you remember the story of King David, he rose to power as God's man for his people. And while his, his armies, the armies of the nation, were, were out at war fighting to expand the kingdom that God had put before him, David is at home, resting, enjoying his estate. And as he is doing that, he looks from his rooftop and sees the beautiful woman Bathsheba bathing on a nearby balcony. And David is tempted by her beauty. And, and David uses the power that the Lord has given him to fulfill his pleasures and takes her. Even though she is the wife of Uriah, of Uriah, the valiant soldier who is out fighting David's battles. He uses his kingly power and abuses it for his selfish wishes. He takes her and lies with her. And she becomes pregnant, and now David has a problem. He's got a problem that he's got to solve. And so he sends for Uriah to come back from battle and says, surely he will come back and he will be with his wife. And there, problem solved. But Uriah is a noble soldier and he will not, he will not have the pleasure of the company of his wife while his comrades are out fighting on the front lines. So he won't go and be with his wife. And David says, I still got this problem. I know how to fix it. I'll get Uriah drunk. Then with his guard down, he will do what I need him to do and take care of my problem. But that still doesn't work. And David's problem is still there. And so this is how he decides to solve it. He sends a letter to a commander on the front lines by the hand of Uriah himself. And the letter says to put Uriah right at the front where the enemy is at its strongest and push forward into harm's way and then even let others pull back. So Uriah is killed on the battlefield. Planned murder, essentially, to solve the problem. David's sin spirals out of control stacks up on itself again and again. All of this rebellion, it's what God has commanded him to do. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan comes to David and he tells him a quick story. There are two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man has many flocks and many sheep in his possession. The poor man, the Bible says, has one little ewe lamb which not only is his only lamb, but it's like his best friend. And this rich man has a guest come to stay at his house. And instead of taking one out of his plenty of flock, he goes and takes the one lamb from the man and then kills it and cooks it for his guest. So Nathan tells this story to David. And what does David do? What do you think David does? He gets angry. He gets angry. There's that sense of injustice, right? What is wrong with that man, that, that rich man, that he would steal 
from the poor man when he had all of that plenty and he would take what was not his? How could he do that? Let's go get this man. And the courageous prophet looks at the king and says, you're the man. You're the man, David. That's what you have done. David, by conviction, then confesses his sin and says, I have sinned before the Lord. And then Nathan says to David these words. The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. That was easy. That's it? You just say, I, I've sinned against the Lord? And the prophet says, I will put that away. Is justice served? How does that work? Imagine, imagine you're Uriah's brother. And you hear that news. Your brother has been killed. Your sister-in-law stolen unjustly. And the Lord's just going to say, it's all good. You're fine. How does that work? Where is the justice in that? We have this sense of, of, of injustice welling up in us. And that's nothing compared to the holy justice of God. God will not be unjust. We have already established this. He has righteous wrath that is due for all sin. Wrath must be satisfied. With God, there's no, there's no just sweeping under the rug of such sin. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, Paul says these words, speaking of Jesus. He says, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood, wrath satisfier, to be received by faith. And then he says this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because of his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. What does that mean? It means all of the sins of the Old Testament saints, God in his patience passed over over those sins, knowing that he would put forward his son to be the wrath receiver for them all. So how are these Old Testament saints saved? The same way these readers in the New Testament are saved, by the propitiating work of Jesus. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed forward. They were demonstration of what God would do in putting forth his son as the wrath-receiving substitute for sinners. They were all a demonstration of what would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ as the only sufficient sacrifice. Now, why does that matter to us? Because... In the same way that the death of Jesus has effect in reaching back as an atoning sacrifice, reaching back thousands of years to be applied to those Old Testament saints and being effective for their salvation. So it reaches forward thousands of years to be the effective atoning sacrifice for you and me. Such is the power of the death of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus dying on that cross is the climactic moment in all of history. It explodes with saving power thousands of years back into the past and thousands of years forward into the future to rescue sinners from their sin and rebellion and restore them to relationship with God. It comes. It comes through his spilling of blood, which brings us to our third question. 
Why is it so bloody? Look at verses 18 to 21. The author says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. The sacrifices of the old covenant, it was a bloody ordeal. Listen to these words. This is in Exodus 24. After the people have received the commandments of God and Moses is interceding for them on the mountain and giving them all the commandments, this is what Exodus 24 says. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Listen to this. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of all the people. And here's what they said. All that the Lord has spoken we will do and all, and we will be obedient. After they say that, watch what he does. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Aren't you glad we're not doing that this morning? You would have picked a different outfit. Why? Why, after reading the law and the people promising we will obey it, is blood thrown on the book and on all of the people? Why, why so much blood? Because God wanted to mark this covenant with the marks of what was necessary to receive full forgiveness of sins and relationship with God. The old covenant had the mark of death on it so that they would be aware of what was necessary, always pointing forward to what would come in Jesus. Think about this scene, what you would see, what you would smell. The the temple that was built in Jerusalem at the time of this letter had a, had a sophisticated drainage system because of the amount of blood that it would take to satisfy God in worship. Day after day, animal after animal, year after year, gallons and gallons of blood would be spilled. Can you picture that scene? What, what reaction that would bring to you? I can, I can remember when I was in high school, I played soccer. And one soccer match, I got a vicious elbow to the eye. And I got a cut right below my eye. And I was bleeding, and so I had to get taken out of the game. I was mad I couldn't finish the game. And my dad was taking me off the field and taking me home. And he said, listen, we, we could go to the hospital, but it's probably just going to be a really long waiting room. I have a butterfly stitch at home. I think I can take care of it. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm holding the gauze in my like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're fine. We, we got this. No problem. So we drive all the way home. We get home. He's going to get the first aid kit. And he says, okay, you know, just go in the bathroom and I'll come in there and we'll, we'll, we'll patch it right up. Okay. I go into the bathroom in front of the mirror. I remove the gauze. There's this little cut and one little drop of blood comes to the surface. I passed out. <laughs> That's all I needed. I couldn't handle it. The scene of worship that God would put forward was a bloody scene. So much so that it would it would turn our stomachs in, in just 
disgust. And we would just be thinking, why, why is all of this so necessary? Why so much blood? And, and God put all this forward because he wanted people to experience, to know, to see, to, to smell the seriousness of their sin. This is what rebellion against God requires. This is the reaction that happens when we rebel against a holy God. The seriousness of our sin requires this kind of scene. Day after day before the God's, peop God's people, they would witness the reaction that their sin would bring about. Blood must be spilled again and again. Leviticus tells us that it is in the blood that atonement comes. The law was given to the people. It was covered in blood. The people were covered in blood. The altar was covered in blood. The walls were covered in blood. The horns of the altar covered in blood. The mercy seat covered in blood. Again and again, so much blood because sin is that serious. None of our sin, none of it, is just small enough and little enough that it doesn't require the spilling of blood. It shows us the radical seriousness of God's holy justice, and that justice is only vindicated where blood is spilled, and it shows us the cost of forgiveness. This is how expensive it is to restore relationship with God. So much blood must be spilled. Precious blood must be spilled. Choose the best from your flock, the spotless among you, and spend the cost all to demonstrate the cost that God was willing to go to restore forgiveness with sinners, that he would put forth the precious blood of his son to be spilled so that sinners would be restored to relationship with him. Our last question, how should we respond to this? What should this make us do? Question that comes out of this first, look at verse 15. Jesus, this mediator who has died, who has spilled his blood, who has done everything necessary to restore relationship with God, he brings this new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Question for you this morning, friends. Are you among those who are called? This restoration of fellowship with God is not universal for anyone and everyone to receive. It's not. It's only for those who are called by God. Only for those who will repent of their sins and throw themselves at the mercy of God and say, I only have one solution and that is Jesus. Only he can fix my cosmic problem. Only he can be a substitute for sin. There is not an amount of good I can do in myself. There's no working my way back into relationship with you. I have no hope in me. My hope is Jesus Christ alone. That's who it's for. That's who are called. And so this morning, if you came in here and you've never confessed your sin before God, turned away from any hope in yourself, and laid all of your hope in this substituting sacrifice for you, if you have not done that, God's word calls to you today. That is how you should respond. That's the only appropriate way you can respond because if you respond by rejection of that truth, you are still condemned in your sin and I say that with a broken heart. But this offer of this promised eternal inheritance 
is open to you. God calls you. Consider that. Ask that God's spirit would fill you to allow that work to take place in your heart. And friends, if you know that that is you, that you have trusted in your only hope, Jesus Christ, then your only appropriate response today is to be in awe of it, to wonder at it, to worship God because of it. How can he forgive a sinner like me? Surely this doesn't know what I have done. Surely this doesn't call to mind things that I have thought in my head and said. Those things could never be in the presence of a holy God. This word tells us that the death of Jesus Christ is all sufficient. That this will that has been established, it tells us that there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's vein, Jesus Christ, God with us. And sinners plunge beneath that flood and what? Lose all their guilty stains. The hymn gets it right. And we sing songs like that every day because this is deserving of wonder and worship. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this truth. We thank you for your word that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and this has told us that Jesus has shed his blood. That there is now forgiveness for the sinner. That we can trust in this substitute on our behalf to restore fellowship with God and there we find meaning and joy in life. So I pray, I ask that you would make these things reality in our hearts and in our minds, that we would respond appropriately with wonder and worship and obedience in a joy-filled life, loving you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.